Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach for the Naval Institute, and with me is the Deputy Editor of Proceedings Magazine, Bill Hamlet. Bill, welcome back to the show. Ward, it's great to be back. So last week we talked about a few things, and uh, we kind of wanted to not really correct the record, um, because we have things to talk about in terms of the Fat Leonard scandal. We also want to revisit OBOGs based on some current events, and wanted to talk about that. But let's start with uh, with a few things about uh, putting a finer point on what we were talking about regarding Admiral Branch and some of the uh, the Fat Leonard scandal. Yeah. So, Ward, you know, last week the news, uh, the big news was that uh, Admiral Twig Branch, uh, former director of uh, intelligence and uh, communications, N two N six. That uh, charges were dropped against him in the Fat Leonard Glenn Defense Marine scandal. We talked about that a little bit last week, and um, we we left a little bit with you know saying that you know that was the major point was that you know this uh, investigation had had uh, dragged on really for four years, and that Admiral Branch and others had lived under a cloud of suspicion. Uh, their um, uh, reputations had been you know certainly. Uh, uh, sullied, you know, muddy, sort of like- sullied, right? It was, uh, you know, and 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 we're not saying, you know, and we did not mean to say last week that, uh, you know, some people who were uh, indicted and then tried uh, and are now in prison for doing, you know, really pretty horrific, slimy things, slimy uh, with things. with uh, Fat Leonard and, uh, yeah, uh, you know, things that, um, uh, you know, certainly sullied the name of the Navy and certainly, uh, you know. Put a lot of people's, uh, you know, judgment at risk, and and uh, and cost the taxpayer, you know, enormous amount of money for uh, personal gain. So, you know, terrible, terrible things. Um, full stop. Terrible things, right? Things that you know, when you when you think about going to the Naval Academy or wherever you went, and then coming up for a full career as a military officer, having you know, some of them had command of ships and squadrons, and. Um, and and then doing some of the things that that they did, you, you know, you just say how how does that happen? Um, full stop. You know, um, at the same time, you know, this kind of harkens back to when you and I were JOs, and there was the tailhook investigation, and again, some terrible things were done, some things that were not becoming of officers and gentlemen in the in the Navy, um, but a whole group, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people were under suspicion, were under investigation for years, promotions held up. Um, and the, uh, the point we were trying to make last week is that with, you know, Admiral Branch's now being, the charges being dropped against him, um, the ability to rapidly move through that process, or at least more quickly uh, move through the process of investigation, indict or don't indict, uh, try those who clearly have a case against them, and let... Uh, those who do not have a case against them, let them move on. Let them either serve uh, or retire, but not, you know, uh, keep them under a cloud of, uh, of doubt uh, for four, up to four years. You know, that, that's, that it seems to be the part on the other hand, you know, for those who are innocent uh, or who got, you know, pulled into this investigation, uh, you know, wrongly, that they, 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 you know, like Admiral Branch, uh, you know, ended up in this cloud, unable to do their job, unable to be re- promoted, unable to retire uh, for a very long time. And it's just, that's not right. So good that justice was done. Um, but to your point, the speed at which it happened, uh, 
I, and I don't know if there's any way to remedy this. I mean, because lawyers would say, look, this is the legal process. You know, it's convoluted. It it's it takes years. Um, but certainly along the way, for a guy who is ultimately um, relieved of any wrongdoing, um, uh, vindicated, uh, th there's a lot of other sort of uh, uh, elements that were thrown, heaped upon him in a way that seems uh, uh, unfair. Um, another thing we talked about last week was uh, OBOGs, and I had mentioned that I had uh, heard from a high-ranking uh, naval uh aviation leader that the OBOX root cause was found and uh, that we were basically uh, good to go. And, and so um, our good friend uh, Hope Hodgsek of uh, Military.com wrote an article on September 29th, and the headline is, Cockpit Episodes Continue After Navy T-45s Resume Training Flights. So um, I direct the audience to read this, this uh, article in full at Military.com. Um, actually, it's one of Military.com's blog properties called Defense Tech. Um, but in the article, Hope reports that there have been, count them, four physiological episodes since the declaration was made that the OBOGS problem is, in essence, behind us. So just to review, for some months, uh, they were unable to uh, do student sorties. So the student throughput was neck down to zero. This affected when... Those who were supposed to roll out of their squadrons were able to roll, and so their tours were extended, so they didn't get to roll to shore duty. It also affected the time it was taking for fresh-caught ensigns and second lieutenants to start flight school. And a pool is fun for two or three months, but it, when it gets to be six months or longer, it's not fun. Um, and again, as Admiral Shoemaker pointed out in our interview with him a couple of months ago, uh, in the September issue of the magazine, um, their commitment doesn't start till they get their wings. So, you know, this can start to be an issue, to put it mildly. So now it appears that um, root cause has not been found. Um, they have some things that they're uh, pointing to. Um, but I wanted to read um, some quotes from Hope's article here, uh, particularly those uh, by Captain Sarah Clutch Joyner, um, so she's the newly appointed head of the Navy's team to study physiological episodes um, and uh, highly respected Hornet driver, um, warfighter, uh, all good. But some of these quotes just don't really add up to me. So let me just uh, read. Um, so she said, and I quote, and we were able to groom the aircraft as well to make sure they were keeping that work of breathing to a supportable level for the human being, end quote. Um, there's another uh, quote towards the end here. Um, the, uh, again, uh, quoting Captain Joyner, quote, so I would say more of what we've seen to date has been a physiologically based response, but the aircraft overall has seemed to be well supporting the human in the loop, end quote. And then the final one I, I just wanted to, to point out, um, because this is my concern, um, she says, quote, maybe there are times when they shouldn't go in a jet and they can self-recognize before they take off the ground that, that it's not their day for them to go airborne. It's sort of a dual approach, meaning the systems analysis and then the self, uh, what, the, what she's calling a self-recognize process. 
So my concern is that in absent the ability to truly and definitively find root cause, that culpability, let's say blame, is being shifted to the air crew in the event there is a hypoxia-like episode. Now, the other thing we wanted to talk about in terms of current events here is, is with great sorrow, um, l- let's uh, report, and most of the listeners know this by now, that we lost uh, VT7 T-45 yesterday, um, and the identity of the pilot was Lieutenant Patrick Ruth, who was 31 years old, and Lieutenant J.G. Wallace Birch, 25. Um, Their airplane went down in Cherokee National Forest in eastern Tennessee, and as I said, they were attached to VT-7, which is uh, one of the advanced training squadrons. Um, So uh, our sympathies go to the families of those two uh, aviators one instructor, one student pilot. We do not know what the cause of the mishap is, so we're not linking this mishap to OBOGS, two separate issues. Um, But just wanted to point out that in the last show, we had sort of said, hey, OBOGS, you know, it's behind us, root cause determined. They're getting student access again, so that that sort of uh, uh, backup logjam is is remedied, and it looks like that that perhaps is not true. So we'll see and keep your eyes on USNI News, among other sources, for what happens with respect to whether they're going to, again, stop the pipeline until they do safely determine root cause or whatever. So I'm just concerned about uh, how this is playing out. Word in uh, USNI News today, there was a story also about Carrier Air Wing 8, which came back from deployment uh, in July, I think, June or July, uh, during the, that deployment, not T-45s, of course, but current you know, uh, tactical, Hornets, tactical yeah. jets, uh, Super Hornets, um, and Growlers, uh, that they had a couple of physiological episodes during deployment on, with that air wing. And the, the CAG was uh, quoted in that article as saying that they had you know, looked at the aircraft and they looked at the, the air crew. Uh, they were trying to find the reasons, and it, you know, all the um, the monitoring equipment that they had in the aircraft made it look like it was not a an aircraft issue. That they couldn't find a spike or a change or a problem in the uh, environmental control systems or in the press, cabin pressurization when those physiological episodes happen. So it's it sounds like it's an uh, it's a concern beyond just the T forty five fleet, beyond just the training fleet. Um, with possibly some physiological episodes happening out in the fleet during deployments, uh, so so stand by. This this is an ongoing issue. It's it's clear clearly something that the Navy and Navair uh, are are looking into, digging into, and it's impacting not just uh, the training community but also the the you know the fleet. So this is why we have Navair. This is why um, you know it takes a long time to get your wings. Um, We've dealt with these sorts of uh, systemic systems issues with various type model series before. Uh, So the right agencies are on the case, no doubt. My only concern um, here in the Sea Service Forum is the idea that we're going to, in essence, punt on being able to find root cause and just push responsibility for safety to the air crew solely. That... That's what jumped out at me in Hope's article. Um, so 
more to follow, as you have pointed out. We have reporting in USNI News today about CAG-8 um, and uh, Nimitz and, and uh, you know, a lot of airplanes have OBOGs. Air Force assets have OBOGs. F-22s. F-22 has OBOGs. And uh, um, there have been issues with, with that airplane as well. So uh, we'll keep our eyes on it. But again, for this audience listening to uh, the Proceedings Podcast, we just wanted to, uh, I don't know if it would be called correct the record or... Provide um, an update. Provide an update, yep. yes. Um, so what else we got going on in the current issue of, uh, of Proceedings that just hit the streets, Bill? Yeah, so before we go to Proceedings, I just wanted to give a shout-out to our conferences uh, folks, uh, April and, and her team that are putting together the uh, Military and Politics Naval History Symposium here yeah, this is awesome. at the Naval Academy tomorrow. Uh, some of the featured speakers and panelists are, are huge names. Uh, and if you uh, are within driving distance of uh, the Naval Academy, and can get here tomorrow to listen to this at Alumni, Hill, Alumni Hall. Uh, but Admiral Mullen will be speaking. Uh, General Colin Powell, uh, former Secretary Powell, will be coming. Who is a member of the Naval Institute and has been for a long time. That's right, and, and values us an greatly. Nice, yes. Very nice. Uh, and um, uh, Bob Woodward will be moderating a panel and also, I think, interviewing Senator McCain in a, uh, a video interview uh, remotely from the is Capitol. Is that the lunchtime event? I think that's luncheon. That? Yeah, okay. Uh, but it, it's a it's a full day tomorrow, and uh, it should be a great event with uh, big speakers talking about, you know, the proper role and participation of the military in politics, uh, not just uh, current day, but also going back in history uh, to see what what former military leaders, you know, Dwight Eisenhower ran for president, except for example. How do you do? Uh, Jimmy Carter, Naval Academy graduate, became president. Uh, but some of the big names will be talking about that, you know, uh, the role of the military in politics and, and you know, where's the, where's the line? Where's the, uh, when do you cross the line? What roles should current active duty people or retired, uh, particularly retired flag officers, four-star flag officers, what, what should their role be in politics? So this is a history symposium or history conference, but really it's current events if you think about it, Bill. Um, remember last summer... Uh, we had various flag officers on both sides of the aisle, both party affiliations uh, coming out in support of one candidate or the other um, from various services. Uh, and there was criticism um, by their former colleagues uh, about public participation in that way. So, you know, some of those personalities are involved in this conference. Um, and uh, it's this is what's great about the events team, as you said, April and uh, and Kate and Don and and uh, the entire Naval Institute, um, you know, bringing together the, these amazing newsmakers and and legendary journalists like Bob Woodward here on the Naval Academy grounds uh, to discuss issues that are really immediate and and important right now in the national. Let's call it dialectic. I'll use a dime store word because I like to. Um, so, as Bill said, if you're on Facebook watching us now. Um, Ahoy from Jacksonville, says Bob Simpson. Hey, Bob. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're in, in the greater D.C. area in Annapolis, uh, come on the yard here and, uh, and uh, stand by for some uh, news-making discussion for sure. Great stuff. So if we uh, turn now to, to proceedings and proceedings. Turn to your hymnals. Yeah. <laughs> turn to page seven. <laughs> <laughs> um, I... 
So we're still talking about the uh, October issue of Proceedings, which uh, hit people's uh, mailboxes uh, over the weekend. Uh, we talked about this a little bit last week in previewing the uh, the submarine focus, uh, which uh, the November or sorry the October issue is. But we've got a, a smattering of uh, of content from across the sea services. Um, we highlighted a, a piece about the Thresher, which was is just an incredible piece, uh, firsthand account. Uh, some things about uh, Russian non-acoustic ASW, Russia's uh, Fifth Fleet. That's or, Norman Polmar's piece, which yep. we were talking about last week. And uh, Mike, shout out to Norman. Michael Kaufman's piece on Russia's fifth generation submarine, which is uh, currently in the planning stages uh, on the uh, designer's desks, uh, you know, in St. Petersburg and in Murmansk. Uh, the Russians are planning what they're going to build in the 2020s. Um, and and I, I'll draw for we have a lot of uh, folks out there who are uh, China hands and China watchers, uh, particularly uh, those out in uh, in Pack Fleet, Third Fleet, Seventh Fleet. Um, Good friend, uh, Captain Jim Fennell, retired uh, former Pack Fleet and Seventh Fleet N2. He writes a, a Now Hear This that's in the October issue, uh, page 10, talking about the clock is ticking in China. The decade of concern has begun. So uh, Jim is a, uh, a China hand, somebody who spent most of his career out in the Pacific watching China's uh, military revolution uh, and the modernization and buildup of their military. Uh, and... Uh, for those who are familiar with China, this will be, um, you know, just a, a reminder of the fact that we have a peer competitor uh, with growing capability, and that capability is of more and more concern. For those of you who are not China hands, uh, I recommend this piece to you uh, because it talks about sort of the development of the Chinese leadership's thinking about their military capability, their goals that they established uh, back in the 1980s w with regards to their military buildup. Uh, the fact that by 2049, which is the 100th uh, anniversary of the, the uh, creation of the People's Republic of China, they want to have the ability, if not already have consolidated power within what is their historical sphere of influence. Um, and Taiwan is a key element of that goal set. Uh, being able to have control over the South China Sea, the East China Sea, and Taiwan. And so Jim uh, raises some, some points about a, uh, a speech made by uh, President Xi Jinping where he basically announced that the Chinese military has reached a level of capability uh, that allows them to do that. Uh, so Jim says, you know, this, this now kind of starts the clock ticking for the next decade, which we call the, you know, the, the decade of concern. Uh, it's a great piece. Uh, Jim is one who is, uh, has been for the last 10 years vehemently, adamantly advocating for a closer eye on the Chinese military buildup, a, a more steady hand in the Pacific, uh, a more steady and firm pushback against uh, Chinese expansionism. Um, and he was there on the front lines uh, through many different crises over the last uh, decade, decade and a half. Uh, either uh, at uh, CSG-5 and then at 7th Fleet and then at Pacific Fleet. So it's a great piece. So every day is amazing here in Beach Hall. Um, and today we had an editorial board meeting. And when, when it was over, uh, went sidebar with uh, a couple of the members. And, and you pointed out something that I thought was, uh, was uh, first time I'd heard it in this way, but the, the Chinese 
very much have taken advantage of the fact that we've been involved in the Middle East. Uh, so they, they first they looked at 9-11 and said, here's an opportunity. And then when we invaded Iraq, even more so, they knew we were going to be tied up with those two conflicts. And they've used that as a way to kind of further their own uh, their own agenda militarily in a way that maybe uh, except those who were paying attention, the rest of us didn't didn't really notice. Uh, let, let's uh, talk a little bit about that part of the uh, the equation. Yeah. So obviously, you know, the the attention of the Pentagon and and the entire national security establishment. Uh, after 9-11, uh, 2001, turned towards the counterterrorism mission, turned towards, you know, how do we go after al-Qaeda after this enemy that has attacked us on our home soil? Huge problem set. Uh, and we had to go get Osama bin Laden. We had to go after al-Qaeda. Um, but at that time, the Chinese very um, calculatedly watched what the United States was doing, watched our focus turn specifically boresighted on the CENTCOM AOR, uh, and watched and learned also from some lessons of the Soviets being bogged down in Afghanistan. And the, the, the senior Chinese leaders around 2001, 2002 predicted that the United States would become uh, bogged down in South Asia. Uh, and we did. You know, We're still in Afghanistan 16 years later. Um, uh, and then in 2003, when we, um, we took on an invasion of Iraq, many would say unnecessarily or unneededly, when Iraq was, uh, Saddam Hussein's uh, uh, regime was in a box, uh, you know, it wasn't per a perfect solution, but they were definitely in uh, a box and under control and under UN sanction control. Uh, you know, we, we went after Saddam and toppled that regime and took over Iraq and spent a trillion dollars there. So uh, a trillion dollars or so in Iraq, a trillion dollars or so in Afghanistan, we're still there. CENTCOM is still uh, probably the top issue of concern for the Pentagon's leadership on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of forces needed. Um, and the Chinese took advantage and have taken advantage of our I being off of the ball in the Pacific, right? Oh, yeah, you know, we've got great relations with China. They're trade partners. They're never going to do anything, you know, to uh, upset that apple cart because we're our you know, biggest trading partners, et cetera. Um, okay, well, others would argue that, uh, you know, they took advantage of that opportunity of that trade relationship, which built their economy, which provided the economic engine, which fueled their military buildup and modernization, and at the same time, uh, used some uh, some subtle and not some not so subtle methods of uh, stealing intellectual property rights uh, of U.S. companies and U.S. defense companies. Um, they bought Soviet equipment, reverse engineered it, built better versions of, you know, SU-33 flankers, for example, um, Kilo submarines, and now they've got Song-class submarines, which are better than the Russian Kilos. So there's been a steady, rapid modernization and buildup of the Chinese military to the point where uh, the, the military equation and balance of power in, specifically within the first island chain in the South China Sea and East China Sea, uh, near our allies and, and close partners, uh, Japan, the Philippines, uh, Taiwan, um, you know, it's different. It's, it's, it's night and day different uh, than it was 15, 20 years ago. So what's the flashpoint? Is it Taiwan? Is it, you know, we, every day we're worried about 
uh, North Korea launching another mission, uh, missile and, and what our response may be. Um, how could this play out? So uh, the, I think the ultimate goal of the Chinese is to win without fighting, right? And, you know, that's Sun Tzu, uh, one of his basic tenets. Um, uh, but the Chinese want to get to a position of power where uh, what they want is, uh, you know, it is a, it's a logical end state uh, that people will have to, you know, give into. An example would be uh, in the South China Sea five years ago now, Scarborough Shoal. Uh, the Chinese sent their fishing fleet, which is Scarborough Shoal, is clearly much closer to the Philippine home islands within the Philippine EEZ. Not it's outside of 200 nautical miles from China. It's inside 200 nautical miles from the Philippines. Uh, but the Chinese fishing fleet kind of went and overwhelmed Scarborough Shoal. Uh, the the uh, Filipino Coast Guard outmatched, uh, and the Chinese Coast Guard moved, you know, within uh, visual range to let the Filipinos know, hey, don't don't pick a fight here because you're going to lose. Uh, and just over the horizon were a number of uh, of Chinese PLA Navy v- ships at the same time. So, hey, if you want to pick a fight with our you know, fishing fishing vessels, our Coast Guard's there. And if you want to pick a fight, Philippines, with our Coast Guard vessels, the Navy's there. Uh, so, that you know, the Filipinos understood, okay, we're not going to win this uh, street brawl. Uh, but they protested loudly, and they uh, complained to the United Nations. They complained to the International uh, Tribunal, uh, International you know, c- c- uh, Convention on Law of the Sea, uh, all of these things, um, and when they did, the Chinese used other levers, levers of power to let them know that, hey, um, you're going to lose this battle no matter what you do. Um, for example, they stopped, the Chinese stopped buying Filipino bananas. So, you know, crates and crates and crates of Philippine bananas, big export for the Philippines, scheduled to go to China, uh, you know, sat on the docks and rotted. Um, and so the Filipino banana farmers, you know, start complaining to their government, hey, I, why can't we sell our bananas? We need our bananas. Uh, so that is an example of where China will use its military, use its fishing fleet, use its economic power, use its diplomatic power, you know, kind of all elements and, uh, you know, pull those levers to let their immediate neighbors know that they are dealing with a much more powerful Beijing. Um, and if you don't cooperate in the way that we envision you know, you're going to feel the pain. Um, and they play a long game. So uh, we'll, we'll see where this goes. But in terms of having now the capability, the Chinese leadership is talking about the fact that they have the capability of if they can't get it peacefully, if they can't get it through diplomatic and economic and, you know, sort of playing this dominoes game, uh, that they've got the power, uh, the military capability to get what they want um, through the, the hammer. And that's a, that's a dangerous situation to be in. It's, it's always dangerous when political leaders uh, think that they can do something that they really want to do, and they can do it quickly with a military solution because uh, that's, a, uh, that's a recipe for, for combat, for war. Yeah. Right. Uh, so you, you have a couple of items from proceedings today. Uh, what, what's the first one there? Uh, so first one, you know, shout out to uh, to junior officers, junior people who write. Um, nice one uh, that we published last night uh, called uh, "Develop Junior Officers as Good Coaches Develop Quarterbacks." So it's football season. It's uh, it's September. People are into their fantasy leagues, and uh, Lieutenant JG uh, Josh Asaro. 
who's a surface warfare officer, is talking about uh, you know the importance of you know when you're when junior officers, when first tour officers get to a ship or a squadron, you know department heads, COs, XOs owe it to them to develop them, to put them on that track of you know don't expect this person. Uh, to come in and, you know, start throwing touchdowns on day one. You've got to develop, you know, just as the NFL develops good quarterbacks, Bill Belichick found Tom Brady, you know, that's probably, that's my favorite example because I'm, I'm from New England, but, you know, there are dozens of examples of, you know, when a quarterback comes into the system and is developed and given a couple of years to understudy and then, you know, then moves up into the, the starting lineup. It's a nice piece, a good leadership piece. And uh, thanks to uh, Lieutenant J.G. Asaro for, for writing that. So, but in terms of developing them as they develop quarterbacks, we'll, we'll leave out the part where they take a knee during the national anthem? Yeah, I don't think we need to talk about that. <laughs> That's just what comes <laughs> With to our mind podcast. when you say NFL <laughs> these days, unfortunately. Um, so what's the next article? The other one is moving a, on. Yeah, the other one is a piece by uh, retired commander uh, Doyle Hodges, who commanded several ships, including a DDG, uh, who's looking, as so many of our recent authors have been doing, um, looking at uh, the Fitzgerald and the McCain situation, looking at who has been relieved uh, as a result of that. So the triad from those ships uh, relieved, and then. Uh, and then now the Desron so triad being COXO, COXO Command Master, Master Chief, Chief okay. right? And then you know the Desron commander, the CSG commander, the Seventh Fleet commander, and now uh, Admiral Swift, the Pack Fleet commander, being told you know it's time time to retire. Um, but but uh, uh, Commander Hodges is saying, you know, we we have this culture in the Navy of holding individuals accountable, uh, and that's a good thing. But uh, it can be taken too far to the point where we might want to look at those particular collisions and those particular leadership leaders uh, and relieve them and think that we're done with this problem. And he's saying at times the Navy culture uh, has to be held uh, accountable. The culture and, you know, others have written about this. You know, do we have a culture of uh, message to Garcia where no matter what mission is given to us, we have to say yes uh, and COs can't say, wait a second, I don't have the crew right now. I don't have the training. I don't have the uh, the maintenance. My ship isn't in the condition to go and do that mission. Uh, and to say that uh, without, you know, ending up, you know, shooting his career in the foot, right? So message to Garcia, um, basically for those who've never heard of it, um, a guy, uh, Lieutenant, yeah, Carl Schoenberg, uh, yeah, yeah. Proceedings Today, last, it was in early September we published. But it, it, it's something that we were given during Pleep Summer. It was not in Reef Points. I was um, given it on I-Day, in yeah, du- Induction yeah. Day. And, but, and it was it like was, the first I thing I read. It was mimeographed or what, right. what it, was, it was, a small pamphlet. Um, but it was, it was not in Reef Points. But basically, it's the orders were, take a message to Garcia. And just the guy ran off. and During the Spanish-American and, and, War, and, right. And the rest was, you know judgment and and pluck and whatever to figure it out so i I think it's intentionally vague in terms of what the moral is of it um so a lot of people are saying it's just just do whatever you're told without question i'm not sure that's the message of message to garcia because part of why we're taught critical thinking and part of why you know there's a distinction 
in, in terms of officer and enlisted, in terms of the net need for college education and whatnot, are these critical thinking skills that, especially in the Navy, which has always been an expeditionary over the horizon force where leadership may or may not be co-located with you, and you have to be able to trust the judgment of your unit commanders and your squadron COs and whatnot. Um, so I, I've heard in recent weeks people misinterpret, or at least my interpretation, of message to Garcia to be that, what you're saying, which is just do it, whatever. I, that's not the way, that's not my takeaway on message to Garcia. Um, message to Garcia to me means use your judgment, use all the the details around you, all the evidence, uh, your training, your ethical and moral compass to make the right call, you know? And so I think there's more to the message to Garcia than what I'm hearing sort of socialized popularly in recent weeks as a result of these mishaps. Yeah, and, and with, every, with any message, there's always the, how was the message intended and how was it received, right? Yeah. And, and uh, you know, some, and uh, Lieutenant Schoenberg, you know, uh, had an example of, uh, you know, a, a ship or two where, where JOs were coming on board asking what seemed to be reasonable questions, and instead of, instead of seniors taking the time to explain or show them how to do what it was, you know, they were just told, ah, message to Garcia, get it done. And, you know, and that's can, can at times be ineffective. Um, but that, in, that's in, the point. That's not the message to Garcia. Right. That's not the message to Garcia. But there's there's that sort of mentality. No, I get it. That, that's, that's my point. It's been mangled. It's mangled. Right. To say like like some sort of Marine grunt, just get it done. Right. That's not that's not what the point of message to Garcia is. Right. Right. But but some have you know some have taken it that way. I know. Uh, that's my point. Yeah. People are mangling the message to Garcia. Right. Like the fleet normally does. Um, <laughs> what do you got there? Some about the uh, F-35. Yeah, just a couple of uh, other things from the uh, October issue of Proceedings in uh, Professional Notes, a piece by uh, Dr. Mark Schneider, uh, who is a retired career um, uh, SES from the Pentagon, also was a senior foreign service uh, State Department, uh, uh, and, and now writes a lot. Uh, he's written for Proceedings uh, in the past year about Russian nuclear weapons. He's also written for many other uh, publications, including Foreign Policy. Um, but he, he did a nice piece comparing the U.S. F-35 and the Chinese J-20. So a little bit back to the China situation. Uh, we were talking about the Chinese military modernization, um, but this piece lays out, and basically Mark is uh, is saying, you know, overall the the Chinese J-20 is kind of a first-generation stealth experiment for the Chinese, uh, so it's not as stealthy as the F-35. It uh, does not have uh, many of the systems integration and, uh, uh, you know, external feeds, data feeds that the F-35 can take advantage of and plug into the naval integrated fires, uh, counter-air, et cetera. Uh, but the, it is an advancement. It is such an advancement in terms of other countries around China and what they're flying for for fighter aircraft uh, that and and they they can build many many numbers of them so that, that and the numbers game you know the qual quantity has a quality all its own and the Chinese are very aware of that uh, so he's saying that uh, while the F-35 toe-to-toe one-on-one uh, versus the J-20 is probably going to win all every time uh, but in terms of the numbers that we'll be able to field or the numbers uh, that Japan or others will be able to field a fourth and fifth generation fighters. Uh, you know, the Chinese are probably uh, con continued to build their advantage with the, the J-20. 
Did you you said many many numbers? Were you just imitating Donald Trump there? <laughs> so we also want to give a large shout numbers. out. <laughs> large, lots of fighters. Lots of fighters. Um, we want to give a shout out. Um, hey Scott in Leander, Texas. How are you? Thanks for tuning in to Facebook and the Proceedings Podcast. Um, we want to give a shout out to our good friend Richard Latour, the editor of Naval History Magazine. Um, this. Uh, comes out every other month and in the October issue there's well one thing we want to and we're we're starting to blow this out as it were um, these graphic novels graphic novel content uh, right? is really hot um, and it's a great way to get educated and and uh, in, in, in a very uh, uh, unorthodox manner in fact we Naval Institute Press has created a another imprint um, called Dead Reckoning Press um, that is that logo itself is super cool so stay tuned for more from Dead Reckoning Press but that's going to be a line of books that are that are, are graphic, graphic novels, novels yeah. right. so we're doing more and more of this um, and uh, it's these are not comics uh, they're graphic novels and, and written by historians and people who know what they're talking about um, but it's a fun way to get get smart on on history and and uh, uh, so forth, but it, and the, one of the other ideas behind it is uh, is a way to attract younger readers, uh, perhaps high school or, or or younger, or you know if this goes into the homes of people who are current naval history readers and their grandkids or kids look at it and get interested in naval history through the graphic novel content, and then they look at something else, uh, you know that's a great thing. Yeah, we we are working hard to make the Sea Service Forum. Um, relevant to all, you know, age groups that matter, um, and that includes JOs, senior enlisted, junior enlisted, um, and in, in the case of naval history, introducing, in some cases, high schoolers uh, and teenagers to the the heritage that is the Naval Service. You know, that's how you and I got interested enough to attend the Naval Academy and make the Navy our, our careers. Um, but another thing I wanted to point out in the in this issue, um, and this is you know those who are listening can't see this, but for those watching on Facebook, um, print is backwards. Scott says, um, "The um, I, is that true? I, it looks okay to me." <laughs> but anyway, um, this cool article about Ernest Hemingway. So there were um, Dartmouth ROTC and ROTC students. Uh, in 1955, right on a, cr on a cruiser to, to Cuba, summer cruise pull, summer pulled cruise into Havana to cru to Cuba, and these guys, being the pluckish, um, uh, you know, get it done mids that they were, uh, basically stalked Hemingway, um, his estate, and this is a really cool story. I won't go through all the details of the story, um, but because of their sort of. Uh, um, their um, chutzpah. chutzpah and and their insistence their their follow follow through um, they did wind up meeting him and uh, they actually had uh, had a, a glass of champagne with him in, at his house so you know now we don't think of writers as rock stars you know it's not like you would see you know um, uh, Brad Thor or somebody at, and 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 I know you can be fans of the guy but you know, it, it wasn't like Bono showed up, you know, right. in, in, in the fifties, Hemingway was like Bono, you know? Um, and, uh, so this is very cool. And he's quite a character Hemingway. Um, and, 
and very much a, a, a man's writer and a guy who'd been to war, uh, was a student of war. Many of his books and short stories are about war. Um, so this is a cool story. I really enjoyed this. So look for Naval History. Go up usni.org and, and subscribe. If you're not a subscriber, you can get it uh, at, at bookstores, uh, depending on which bookstore you're at. Um, so uh, wanted to bring up Naval History uh, at, during the podcast as well. Um, is something else we wanted to talk about? Just very quickly, because there's been so much in the news uh, for the last uh, about a month now with Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Irma, Hurricane Maria, uh, disaster response in uh, the Virgin Islands, in Puerto Rico, over Texas, uh, Louisiana, and, and Florida. Um, we have a, a nice piece. Uh, it was written before these current disasters, but uh, Cadet Third Class uh, Evan Tuarog at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy uh, was writing about how to use big data. Uh, for disaster response, how to tap into how can the Coast Guard and other uh, federal agencies like FEMA use apps, use commercially available uh, information, use Facebook and other feeds uh, to, to help pinpoint the delivery of disaster response and uh, personnel recovery. Uh, you know, how can they go into a place and know exactly where people need to get food and water immediately, where people are on rooftops? And some of that information now is being uh, delivered and is available through things like Facebook and through Google and through other uh, applications. And it's not all uh, via 911 calls to the local, uh, you know, EMS uh, crew. So uh, it's a great piece uh, written by, a, you know, a Coast Guard uh, third-class cadet. He was a plebe when he wrote it, or whatever they call plebes at the Coast Guard Academy. Uh, but, uh, you know, this is a... Uh, swabs. Swabs. Yes. I was just there. Awesome. And a couple of swabs showed me where, where, where showed Carolina and I where we needed to go. Um, so, yeah. Well, actually, there's swabs during plebe summer, and then they stop being swabs. Got it. Yeah. Okay. But uh, this just points out or swab for, summer for not plebe summer for, for anyone uh, junior folks listening. Uh, you know, if you're a cadet, if you're a midshipman, ROTC, Naval Academy, Coast Guard Academy, uh, if you're a junior officer, if you are uh, senior enlisted, you know, junior enlisted, uh, we will publish you. It's, this is not a magazine that's just for senior officers. It is not. Uh, uh, the the uh, uh, Professional note just before that one by the Coast Guard Academy cadet is written by Gunner's Mate First Class Wayne Moore. So First Class Gunner's Mate talking about preparing gun crews on on Navy ships for combat and how we need to have more uh, training rounds, live rounds that are not just training rounds uh, to train gun crews. So uh, it's great to see our young people, uh, whether enlisted, junior officers, cadets, midshipmen, uh, writing for proceedings, and we are publishing more and more uh, junior people with an edge uh, who've got an idea about how to make the sea services better. So and that's the dare great. factor. Exactly. Right? That's what we're all about. Your forum, regardless of rank or service. Uh, so that's all the time we have this week. Join us on Facebook again about uh, 3 o'clock Eastern every Wednesday. Um, and then look for the Naval Institute page on SoundCloud. And also look for the link to the Proceedings Podcast in our, our various social media um, channels, Facebook and Twitter primarily. So like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. And remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>